I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to episode 71 of Talking Golf History, and part two of The Legacy of Tom Morris. I'm going to do my best to keep this short, because this episode is so spectacular. We enter part two with young Tom Morris but we explore so many other facets of old and young Tom Morris, including Tom Morris's underrated career as a golf course architect and the misconceptions of his work. A special thanks to St. Andrew's golf historian, Roger McStravick and Stephen Proctor for joining us again to discuss the legacy of these two amazing golfers. Without further ado, let's start where we left off. Stephen, you know, there's zero doubt that old Tom Morris was a legend even in his time. Tommy was born and spent his early years in Presswick. How did young Tom shape his golfing skills? I should point out that Tommy was born in St. Andrews, uh, and then his family moved uh, three months after his birth down to Presswick. So can you imagine the difficulty of that? Oh, my gosh. It was long travel. They had all of Tom's shop's equipment. They had whatever family belongings they have their going on ferries they're taking you know cart rides it's a long difficult day carrying a baby the whole way so he's a three-month-old infant and who knows how much he misbehaved during that particular trip but i'm sure it was a tough one for for nancy morris um you know tommy is not a lot written about tommy's childhood as a golfer you can't really find much about it he had two good friends that he played golf with regularly james hunter and Johnny Allen, Johnny Allen became the first professional at North Devon when that course was built and was a very formidable golfer, as were his brothers. Uh, I know that uh, I don't know whether, you know, Tommy surely must have played golf. Uh, you know, if you read his father's own story, he was playing golf as soon as he could swing a club. And I'm sure that was true of young Tommy and probably more so even than his father, because he had to benefit his, you know, Tom talks about in his interview with Henry Leash, how he had to make clubs and they were be odd weirdly old-fashioned odd-looking instruments and uh sometimes use half a ball because that's all they could find or whatever tommy was probably a well-equipped golfer uh from a very early age for the simple reason his dad had a shop in which he assembled clubs and made balls and i'm sure that tommy had cut down clubs and he was little uh and probably played some on the links uh when there weren't other golfers on it but they may also have done like tom done played you know golf in the churchyard or wherever they could find a place to hit a ball around. Uh, But, you know, it's just not much is not known. I mean, obviously he became a really, really good golfer really young because when he was just 12 years old, right about to be 13, his father took him out for his first competition there in 1864 at Perth. Uh, But I'm not aware of a lot written about his early years in golf. Are you, Roger? 
No, no, I, I think no. It's it's pretty much like Jesus, really. There's there's um there's a big gap beginning. <laughs> you heard it here first, young Tom Morris Jesus comparison. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, there's not a lot written there. I mean, obviously, when he makes his debut at Perth, it's a sensation. It's uh, people are amazed at the way he can play, uh, and you know, he's. I think it's fair to say that. When he showed up at Perth, he was supposed to play in an amateur event there that all these events that they had in this age would be, you know, the main tournament. But people came there and travel was difficult and they needed the shots to make money to pay for the expenses. So there would be other events associated with it where they could caddy to pick up a little money or play against somebody else with a bet to pick up a little money or make get some opportunity to to uh, earn their 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 keep there. And Tommy was going to play in an amateur event, but the committee that ruled the thing said, "I don't, I, I don't think that'll work out. Uh, you're the, you're the son of the most famous golfer in the country, and not only that, he must also have had a reputation by then as being a pretty great young golfer because the, it was clear that his reputation had preceded him in the way that the committee dealt with him, and they told him he couldn't play in the amateur event. And I'm pretty sure the professionals expressed their distaste for having him play in the professional event because i think you know there was probably not but there was always the chance that he would do something spectacular and it would be kind of embarrassing to get beat by a 12 year old boy so i don't think they were that keen on the idea of him playing there and and a, and a member of the club rescued the situation by finding a great young golfer from perth named william Gregg that he got to play against but when he played against him that the stuff that was written about that event indicated that everyone was quite aware that he had just witnessed the, the arrival of a prodigy. You know, I think, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but uh, young Tom seems cast in the very mold of a golfer. Uh, you know, he looks steady as an embryo as his father. So he was, even then, it was obvious to everyone that he would be as good as his father, if not better. And, uh, and it wasn't long before he proved that, you know, um, in 1867, just three years after that, he plays in a field at Pres- at Carnoustie of 32 players, which and Roger can tell you, in that age, 32 players is every great golfer there is, pretty much. And he uh, he finishes in the tie with Willie Park and Bob Andrew of uh, Perth, and then uh, beats them both in a playoff where even his father won't bet him. His own father doesn't bet him in the playoffs. He says, I think Tommy's a little over young for that kind of pressure. But he wins that. That, that was a, a sensational thing. It was very soon after that, you know, I think you got to think about the rise of young Tom in concert with his dad, because very soon after that, they start playing in foursomes together. Their first foursome together for any kind of decent money was in 1867. And they played in uh, Tom played in 24 foursome matches of consequence that I could locate when I was doing the research on the book. And uh, 14 of those, more than half, he played with his father as his partner. Uh, their record was an up and down record. Old Tom had a lot going on and he wasn't always in the greatest of form. And I think Harry Everard rather uncharitably in the badminton book wrote that he was never more than a drag on his son. And I don't think that's true at all. Tom was a really great golfer, but they were a formidable team and they were by far the major attraction in golf, them playing together, father and son. Those events were hugely popular. And, uh, so from 19, 1867 on up till the time of Tommy's death in 1875, it's good to remember that the very last consequential match he played in when he got the news that his wife had uh, 
difficulty in childbirth was with his father against the Parks, as it would happen. Uh, four Open champions squaring off in North Barrett, old Tom, young Tom, Mungo, and Willie. So Mungo, uh, whose namesake you'll have on shortly. Uh, and those events were just sensationally popular and would be written about it quite a bit during the year leading up to it. Newspapers be banging the drums in advance of it and so forth. So, you know, it's not known how he learned to play golf early. It's not known if he ever played, got lessons from his dad in the traditional sense. I doubt that. What do you think, Roger? I mean, I think that wasn't how things went. People watched other golfers and just learned by watching, but I don't know. Yeah, no, I, 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 I think, um, he probably had the finest tutor available. Um, but the tutor probably would have had more lessons out on the course and playing. You know, it's, it's not like, you know, sitting with a track man and, and, you know, seeing your ball flight and spin rate and stuff like that. I think it was very basic. I think you're absolutely spot on. I think in those days, um, you know, uh, the game was played a lot faster. Uh, you know, practice swings were seen as dishonorable. <laughs> you know, so um, um, I, th- I think you're spot on. I think he, he would have had an absolute training from his dad but it, it is incredible to, to you know to think about what you were saying you know he's 13 so this is 1864 and his father is the open champion um for that year but he's challenging open champions that's, that's just hard to get your head around you know it's it's like tiger having a 13 year old son who was beating phil mickelson you know it's just just insane and just shows you how naturally gifted he was, you know. You know, obviously he had good golfing genes, but but I think um, we talk about Tom being the best golfer in the world at that time, but Tommy was so far ahead of everyone else. You know, that was his future, really. Um, but it's just it's just hard to you know to get our head around how good he was. What do we know about their games? I mean, how did their styles differ between old Tom and young Tom? Well, young Tommy was had a very different approach to golf. I think the main thing for young Tommy is two two things, really. He, he just approached golf differently than men of his own time did. You know, Tom and Alan before him, they approached golf in a way that the highest form of golf was to be scientific, as they would say in those days, to know precisely how to strike your ball for every shot and to maneuver the ball around the course without getting into the difficulty and keeping your score nice and clean in that way. Uh, you know, Tommy had zero use for that. His, his idea was attack every shot, every hole all the time. And uh, that was just something that was very different than what his father did or the golfers before him. Also, they had this really long sweeping St. Andrews swing uh tommy had a much much shorter swing particularly backswing but he would just fling himself forward at the ball i sort of think of like visually of gary player in a certain way just flying at the ball or harold hilton and his hat flying off into the crowd and so forth and so on but he was just swashbuckling dashing sort of approach to the game that hadn't really been seen up to that time uh i'd say the closest thing to it at that time was probably willie park you know willie park was a pretty uh pretty frisky player and even he has quotes saying he was amazed at the way old tom young tommy would attack the ball uh and um so i think that that was a big part of it is that he had a just a different approach mentally to golf probably the biggest rule of the time was don't press and tommy's like i go all out on every swing i this whole thing about not pressing is ridiculous 
Uh, and the other, the main thing was he had no fear. You know, he kind of liked being in trouble. You know, because that would give him a chance to show off and uh, show everybody how great he was. I think a lot. If you were looking for a modern golfer to compare him to, I would compare him mostly to Seve Ballesteros because uh, he just uh, he would make these amazing shots from recovery. He would swing really hard at the ball, whether you know he didn't care whether it. I mean, he wanted it to be in the fairway and everything, but he wasn't afraid of it running into trouble. And he knew he would be able to surmount trouble if he did run into it. And I think that's a big part of the reason he posted the scores that he posted, which are just otherworldly. I don't know what else you can say about some of them. Old Tom Morris won his last Open in 1867, and the very next year handed the Open torch over to his son in 1868 at Presswick. Can you both share that breakthrough moment for young Tom Morris in 1868? Well, I can take it from Tom's point of view. He must be the, the proudest person to ever come second. Yeah, he was a stroke off the lead after the first loop, right? Yeah, yeah. After the first two. Yeah, after the first two. Um, so I, 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 th- I think, you know, it, it's almost like a handing over of the, you know, of, of the belt, literally, you know, um, just a Tom bursting w- with pride, you know, um, uh, the only father and son ever to come first and second. I think it was just a, a, a magical moment, really, you know. And if, if there was any, if there was a closing of the door on Tom's career, this was the best way to do it, to hand it over to his son. You know, it's, just, it's, yeah. it's interesting that Tommy took the battle with the record. Uh, in the final round, he shot 49, which was the lowest score that had ever been shot, into, shot to that date in, in the Open Championship for a single round, reminding listeners that this was played at the 12-hole Presswick course. So you made three loops around the Presswick course uh, for 36 holes, and... Uh, Tommy had um, a 49 in the final one, which interestingly, uh, that a year later, I believe it was, uh, or that same year, Alexander Dolman, who was a reporter and is the brother, I believe, of William Dolman, the great amateur from Glasgow, uh, had written an article in which he asked Davy Strath and Jamie Anderson what they thought represented perfect golf at Presswick. This was long before the concept of par actually existed, but he did use a word, that word, which was uh, actually a stock market term at the time, uh, which is something that represented the fair price of a share of stock was the par price. Uh, And they thought that 49 was perfect golf at Presswick. Of course, I don't think they imagined anyone doing that at the time. I believe for the longest time, 52 was the lowest that had ever been done for 12 holes. And that, uh, Tom and, and Willie lowered it to 50, and then young Tom lowered it to 49 in that same tournament in 1868, uh, and would, of course, lower it further uh, two years later. Remarkable golf. Uh, and then, of course, he stamps his own stamp on the game in the Open, uh, winning four in a row before his demise, of course. I think the thing that you got to remember, too, is that that 1870 Open, which I did a piece for Rogers through the green on, just on his score there, that score of 149 for 36 holes absolutely staggers the imagination. Uh, you know, it's the way that people thought of golf then was not par, but how you did in relation to fours. Uh, how did you do in relation to an average of fours? And Tommy was five over level fours for that event. 
which was by far the lowest that it had ever been. And it would be all the way until James Braid, uh, you know, generation and a half later before somebody shoots lower than five over fours for an open championship. And he did it in three over. And uh, even, you know, what amazed me is I was working on this second book going through the late 1890s, even after the turn of the century. If you're looking at 36 hole scores in the open, 149 is still a very low 36 hole score in the open in 1900. You know, 30 years after Tommy puts it up with better balls, better clubs, mowers, uh, all kinds of things. So that is the thing that I think catapulted him to the level of myth almost. Uh, because nobody could ever have imagined that uh, that sort of a score was possible. And I also think it it is influential in the gradual rise of stroke play over match play. Because, you know, in match play, no one kept their score. And they didn't even think about the idea of low scores. So that introduced a new idea in some levels. Just agreeing with what Stephen said, you know, how exceptional Tommy was um, on, in 1870. And you have to consider if he wins it this time, he gets to keep the belt. So there's all the pressure of that. And on the opening hole, the opening hole Presswick was 578 yards. And this is when they're hitting it 180 to 200 yards. And Tommy had a three, which is just incredible. You know, you know, with all the nerves, you know, if he, if he wins it, he gets to keep the belt. The first person, you know, um, went three in a row. And um, and he does it. So he is exceptional. I agree completely with what Stephen said. You know, he's on a, a different level to anyone else. Can you just imagine that scene, Roger? So here are this the huge crowd, of course, is all following Tommy because history's on the line. This is, I think of as his Tiger Woods moment. So there's all these great golfers assembled, Davy Straff and others, trying to prevent him from getting the belt in the same way that old Willie prevented Tom from getting it in 1863 because Tom had two wins in a row in 61 and 62 and could have closed it out right then that year. But golfers didn't want to see someone take away that trophy. They wanted to do everything they could to prevent that from happening. And can you imagine the roar when that ball dropped in the hole? Can you imagine (laughs) what that sends as a signal to the rest of the golfers on the field? Hey, if you're planning to come and stop me, you better get busy because (laughs) I just made a three to start. And, uh, you know, and he well, finished that round of of nine of twelve holes in forty seven, two strokes below what was believed to be par uh, by the two great golfers uh, of the age that played with him. And uh, no one had ever dreamed of the idea that a person would shoot under par. That was just something that was not even entering into the consciousness of golfers at that time. And so th- th- that is just. That's a moment, uh, one of the great moments in the history of the game, in my opinion, that three. Roger, let's come back to you here. Uh, When most people think of old Tom Morris, they think of the golfer. But old Tom's impact on golf course architecture is often overlooked. Can you share how Tom Morris helped shape the land on which this game is played? I think it's a really good question. Tom designed or redesigned um, over 100 courses. But what is often said is that he was a stomp and stick designer. You know, he walks out in the morning, stomps across the course, knocks some pegs into the ground, uh, says that's the course and it's the best course in the kingdom. 
has lunch and then comes out and plays golf, um, you know, after lunch. And that could be further from the truth. He was constantly going back and refining courses and refining courses. And the brilliance that I see of, of old Tom is there seems to be a pattern of optical illusions on Tom's courses. So take, for example, the first and the 18th at St. Andrews. You know, when you're in the first 30 yards further than what it appears, so you're playing the first hand, you think, well, that looks about 120 yards. And then the caddy tells you it's 150 yards, you know. So you've gone up from a wedge to, you know, seven iron, really. And you have to convince yourself to hit it, you know. The 18th looks much closer than it really is, you know. But it's another 20, 30 yards. The second thing is what's uphill is probably downhill when you're putting on the greens. So, for example, if you're coming towards the 18th green, you think green looks like a billiard table, you know, and you think, oh, this looks relatively flat. But if you stand by the steps of the RNA and look towards the green, it is on a massive incline. So you, so you better aim to the right hand side of the green and it will naturally feed back, you know. So, and then the third thing is it was a lovely sense of drama with the hazards having sort of biblical names, you know, um, you know, the Valley of Sin thing, and, you know, I just, just, so I, th- I think I think he's a very uh, underappreciated golf course architect, the person who set out golf courses. But if you look at his track record, it, it is fantastic. You know, Royal County Down is just one of the most beautiful courses I've ever played. You know, it, it's it's probably my number two next to the old course. And also, Tom didn't necessarily um, – he worked with the land, and that's the, the important thing. You know, there was not lots of earthworks – to create, you know, you know, mounding, etc. He just worked with the land, and the designs he came up with, you know, just looked like they were naturally created, you know. So, so it looks there's a bunker there, but it looks like it's been designed for a sheep, you know, for some sheep because that's where the wind would have blown, you know, and that's where it would have naturally appeared. So, I, I think the simplicity and the brains of over Tom is often misinterpreted as a stump and stick guy, you know, because if you play the new course and you, you honestly, you look very silly very quickly, you know, because you, you ram a putt thinking it's straight uphill and it just flies off the green because it was actually downhill, you know. So, um, uh, so yeah, so whether that was intentional, that's what he has created, you know. It's so interesting. I think, you know, I think I blame Tom Simpson uh, for some of this. You know, in uh, in the early 1900s, when he started, he became so influential with his writing on golf history. And if I have a book here in front of me from the Lonsdale Library, uh, where he's writing about golf architecture, three big essays about golf architecture. And the first one, you know, describes the dark ages from which these uh, new designers are emerging and includes uh, people like old Tom, Willie Park, so forth as having not created any good golf courses and uh, not even understood the beautiful strategy of the courses that they did play. And I think that's nonsense. And, you know, it's interesting to me, like in his own writing is, is, uh, is, is, you know, and obviously Simpson was a great architect himself. And whenever I'm talking about architecture, I'm wandering outside my field. So that's always a dangerous matter. But I feel as if, um, you know, whenever you're starting something new, you have to rebel against whatever is old. 
And I think in a way, Tom got classified with what was old and not as good. And that's not true or fair. You know, if you look at, you know, the sad truth of the matter is, and Roger would know more about me this than I do, but my understanding is that there aren't that many actual Tom Morris holes completely left the way they were when he made them, uh, that, you know, his routings still exist and many of them have been altered so much that it's not really fair to call it a Tom Morris hole. But if you play ones that are clearly Tom Morris holes, like the first at London Links or the Alps, or the Himalayas, uh, those are amazing holes. You know, the Alps, I, if I had to say, what are the top par four golf holes I've played in the world? I would probably put the Alps second behind the road hole. Uh, and, you know, he created amazingly dramatic golf holes. Uh, and, you know, we can't lose sight of the reality that it was Tom who helped to create the width and angles that are the basis of most modern architecture by removing winds, expanding to the double greens, which Roger has spoken about elsewhere. I've heard him talk about how, you know, the inventiveness and in making them horizontal because there wasn't enough room to go other ways. And, and, you know, those large double greens are one of the more devilish problems that you confront at St. Andrews. And the fact that he cleared away all the winds and things, created all the things that tom simpson found so beautiful so i think perhaps mr simpson uh you know overlooked some of the contributions that tom made to what he found beautiful about the old course and revelatory so i feel like he's vastly underestimated there and the one book that has been done about it is i think of as completely unsatisfactory and i think roger needs to do a book about old tom the architect to set this matter straight once and for all yeah, I'd love to do that, actually, because um, there's so much to say, you know. You know, even if you think um, uh, that the the whole front nine at St. Andrews is Tom Morris. You know, that did not exist. When he was growing up in St. Andrews, that did not exist. Tom created it, but as you say, by clearing the win away. The first green did not exist, you know. the They played to the 17th green because they played the same holes out and back. And then the 18th green. So I think... Uh, he is an absolute wonderful designer. Like one of my favorite courses is the Balcomi at Creil. You know, I could play that course. I always judge the course by how you feel afterwards. And when I come off Creil, I just want to have a bit of lunch and go straight out again, you know, because there's holes that you could possibly drive or get near, you know, and then there's holes where you play over the coast, coastal line and just by the water. It's just absolutely beautiful, you know. So I think... Um, uh, he is underappreciated, but I think I, I love the fact that we're talking about it and we're trying to raise the profile of what he has done, you know, because it's just a, a list of, of phenomenal courses. Well, and on top of that, not only just St. Andrews, but old Tom Morris was essentially a draw for future golf course architects or architects that were are men who are inspired to be golf course designers. Uh, McKinsey, Donald Ross. Uh, had to go to St. Andrews to see his work and sometimes even see him. That that impact stretches far beyond, you know, just the courses that he's designed, which, let's face it, are in some of the world top 100 golf course rankings. They're uh, iconic. They are eternal. Exactly. And, you know, we talked before about everybody coming to St. Andrews and visiting with old Tom, and that was true of all the world's architects at that time. They all wanted to go and talk to old Tom. Tillinghast himself as well writes about it in his own 
No, I mean, there's a lot about that in the biography of him, what old Tom, you know, imbued into him about the strategy of golf and so forth and so on. So I would say that's probably the area of his work that is least appreciated uh, overall is architecture. I think he's, you know, as Roger says, categorized in a way that's not accurate or fair. And I think he did it, had a much greater contribution. You know, Keith Cutton in his book, The Evolution of Golf Course Architecture, I think uh, begins to change that some. He has a nice section in there about Tom and his contributions and his influences over the architects that we now think of as the great golden age architects, almost all of whom uh, at one time or another uh, were studied with or talked to or visited or admired the work of old Tom. So that that influence spreads out through the ages. I think that's what I find so fascinating about old Tom Morris. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I, I, I stopped focusing so much on old Tom the golfer, and I start thinking about his design work, and then, you know, it's probably not fair to say, I'm going to say it anyway, but you get this sense that he's he's not the first golf course architect, uh, right? There were people who did it before him, but he did it so well. He was one of the first that did it so well and did it all over the place, Ireland and England and Scotland. Um, he wasn't the first golf pro uh, or golf professional, but he did it so well. He set it up as something that would, a respectable position within the community that could be honored across the country. Not only that, Tom, you know, he, he also sent the majority of professionals out to the new courses in England. A lot of the times they would consult with Tom about who they should hire. Absolutely. And, uh, Absolutely. Know, Tom would recommend Johnny Allen or Tom would recommend somebody else. And those people would then get jobs, not just in the England either, in the United States too. So this whole Scottish diaspora that happens uh, that helps golf spread around the world, a lot of it emanates from people seeking the font of wisdom, which was old Tom. Everyone who wanted to build a golf course anywhere, for, as far as I could tell, up through about 1910, the first person they touched base with was Tom. You know, and a lot of times they called him out to do it, and it would be revised later by other people. Uh, but um, but a lot of it starts with Tom, and it's amazing when you go through the whole history of the game how often his name comes up and how often he's consulted about virtually everything. Yeah, and, and and I think where I was going there too is, and then you look at his uh, gift to greenskeepers or superintendents today, uh, and how you take care of a golf course, and you know every every golfer that doesn't know about you know keeping up the green, you know thinks of top dressing as just a horrible thing, but you know if it weren't for old Tom Morris sprinkling sand on the greens we wouldn't have the healthy greens and the green speeds we have today. I mean, it's really remarkable. I mean, the one thing that we lack from old Tom, and it perhaps it predates him, perhaps it's not his style, is a book written by old Tom himself talking about how he looks at the game of golf, how he looked at golf design, how he looked at taking care of the golf courses that were designed in front of him. I just, his impact is so strong, Roger. It's really amazing. I mean, outside of winning opens. He did do a piece for a newspaper that I saw once in which he outlined his ideas for what constitutes a good golf course and the relative length of how, how you should have a mix of holes of this length and so forth and so on. And some fundamental principles were put down. I don't know if he probably didn't write it himself. He was probably assisted in it or interviewed for it, but, uh, 
but he could he could write some but i mean i doubt if he did that but anyway he has put his ideas out there a little bit but not much yeah that, that would have been wonderful you know um a book by old tom but but he he just he he was the character of the man you know he he's such a humble guy as well and i know this sounds like roast into glasses but it is you know they wanted to claim the call the new club the tom marsh club and he said no no people will be calling it the new club so he just called the new club you know um and that was the nature of the man you know so um, for tullock to to write a book about him you know that was fine you know as was you know all the meetings he had with journalists and and spoken to but um but to him to write his own book might have been a, a step too far for him you know um i i, I think he, he would let other people say how how brilliant he was, but it wasn't something that he would feel comfortable, you know, admitting. Really, you know, just you know, keep your head down and ply on, sort of thing, you know. But yeah, no, I just I think um, in my favorite four ball would be Old Tom, Sevy, and and probably Jack, <laughs> Tommy Nebby, because I get as excited about Jack Nicholas funny enough that I do about uh, Tom Morris because Jack for me is the greatest you know and um, and to, to have a cup of tea with Jack Nicholas would be amazing it would feel you know so that for me as a person I would, that's what I would love to I would love to do that's fantastic Stephen let's jump ahead here it might be said that the first great triumphant was in fact Alan Robertson old Tom Morris and Willie Park then came this upstart Tommy who in to use the immortal words of Bobby Jones, played a game of which others were unfamiliar. How did young Tom Morris redirect the way the game was played? What is his ultimate impact in how the game was played from there on? Well, I would say it breaks down into two things. One is what we approached, talked about earlier, the approach to the game, the attacking style. But he also you know, was the first player to really popularize the use of iron clubs, in part because... There was a transition taking place with the gutty ball, which was much harder and could withstand the pounding of iron clubs in the way that feather balls never could have done. Allen had done that some. The shot that Roger described earlier in the podcast with the club he used to call his frying pan, in which he hold to win that match, send it into extra holes, and then win the match. He was pitching onto the green with iron clubs before anyone else, not regularly. But then Tommy, you know, he just hit a lot, if not all, of his approaches to the green with with his rud iron uh, when he was from distance, and he could get it to fly in the air and stop, which was new. And people then started imitating that. And then, of course, iron clubs proliferated. So that was a really big contribution to the game by young Tom in terms of uh, revolutionizing the way certain shots were played. He had this little short club he called a jigger that he did bump and runs with and, you know, where other people were using their wooden putter from way off the green. So he changed technique a lot, but the attacking style was probably the biggest thing. But I would say if you were to talk about a distinguishing trait of old Tom, young Tom as a golfer was that he was educated, you know, and that just never happened. No golfer of his age, with the possible exception of Davy Strath, was anywhere near as educated as Tommy. Tommy went to the Air Academy, which was one of the leading schools in Scotland then and now. And uh, he would have gone to class with the sons of, you know, very wealthy men and, uh, he felt quite comfortable in that company in a way that other golfers never could because they didn't have the education that he had. 
it was just another sign that from the very beginning, Tom and Nancy realized they had they had a son who was really, truly gifted. And it cost the Morrises a lot of money to send them there. And it was difficult to get there and back, too. They lived three miles or so from the school, which in those days, that was a trip. Uh, and so, you know, I feel like probably the most distinguishing characteristic of him, besides the fact that he was such a brilliant player and that he revolutionized how people attacked the game and played with irons, was he was just a different breed of golfer. And he uh, he could travel in a company that other golfers weren't able to travel in uh, and also had a different view of himself than they had. He wasn't a person who was going to see himself caddying for other people or teeing up their ball or any of that kind of stuff. He was, you know, a different man. And he was, you know, his education also put him into a category of people who were thinking about public affairs and uh, in a way that ordinary caddies and professionals ordinarily didn't. So those are the things that I think, you know, he started the idea of a professional as a as a person that could be, you know, he and his father and Alan before him, you know, a person who is respected by people who ordinarily would look down at caddies as, well, I think Hutchinson described them as feckless, restless creatures who only loves their golf and whiskey. You know, so, uh, but Tommy was a different type of player and a different type of man, had an idea, a different idea of himself than other golfers. Yeah, he passed away so young, Stephen, and, and you know me, I, I love to ask these questions of historians that don't have answers, and probably historians hate them, that's probably why I answer ask it too, but can you imagine how he might have shaped the game had he lived, you know, gosh, he died in his young, you know, in his youth, 24. in his 20s, yeah, early 20s. Can you imagine how he might have shaped the game had he lived, a, a you know, a long life like old Tom? What might his impact have been beyond his golf? Because really what we saw from him was his remarkable golf, you know, would he followed his father's footsteps in architecture? Would he have been, you know, one who might have written a book? I, I kind of think that he might have had the moxie to write a book. Well, those are good questions. It's hard to know. You know, um, I would say that he would have won a lot more tournaments, that's for sure. And he would have definitely helped the game gain a foothold elsewhere in England, much as, as, even much sooner than it did would have driven the popularity of it more. But, uh, you know, sometimes dying young brings a myth around you too, that has its own, its own weight and power. And it could be that the fact that he died young is part of what makes the myth of Tommy, uh, what it is. I don't, it's hard to say, but he, he certainly had a lot of great golf left in him. He was still a very young man and, you know, his father was winning tournaments, uh, in his forties. So you have to think that Tommy would have, really made a huge impact in terms of number of championships won. And uh, it would be interesting to see how he had done with some of the more advanced clubs that came along during his own lifetime and things. But it's hard to know, but I would imagine he would have had an even greater impact than he already did have, which was substantial. What do you think, Roger? Yeah, I, I definitely see him either matching or beating Varden, you know, in terms of... Um, number of opens winning i see him picking up another couple if not another few you know he could be the he could have been like you know he could have had seven opens you know and be the record holder to this day you know just um it's it's so tragic you know dying at you know uh 24 or so and and what what 
he didn't have a chance to do is 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 heartbreaking really you know you know i definitely could have seen him following in his father's footsteps and and um where his father um is criticized um for a lack lack of technicality tommy had the brains you know so i i could definitely see him being the architect you know and and also being able to commercialize uh, the business more than than Tom ever could, you know. Tom wasn't necessarily a great um, businessman. He wasn't a bad businessman by any stretch of imagination, you know. He was perfectly, you know, ran a very successful business for a number of years, but not on the scale of Forgan, you know, uh, Robert Forgan, who who ran a massive club factory. So you could see Tommy taking it to a more educated level. And, you know, it's quite sad to think he could have had kids, you know, and all that. It's just how it all ended with his wife dying and then and the, the child being stillborn and then Tommy dying, you know, three months later is just heartbreaking, really. But, yeah, I, I, I could see him being another Colossus, really. And you, you almost wonder, in, in complete unfair speculation, but does he speed up the gap between the amateur game and the professional game or the acceptance of the professionals like say Walter Hagen does what is that 50 years later uh in the acceptance of the professionals as a you know viable profession being allowed into the clubhouse could he approach that gap with that respect and education and intelligence that he had as a player i mean we'll never know obviously but I don't know. I just think about that. But coming back to this, Roger, you know, how much of that legacy of, of young Tom was kept alive through his father? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, completely. You know, every, everything from the statue being built, you know, to the belt, the belt being given to, you know, the RNA. Um, I, th- I think... Um, uh, Tom was immensely proud of that. I think it would have been very hard on poor Joff, who was their other son, but and shot seventy-seven round the old course, but never won a you know an open championship. I think that it would have been very hard growing up with you know the we talked about the shadow of Alan, but the shadow of Tommy would have been immense. It's just um, I know Tom had a portrait done of Tommy and I've seen the portrait and it is utterly amazing and and that would have been in the house you know until the day the uh, Tom died um so I, I think he was so proud of him so proud of him and um and it's it would have been so hard for poor Joff to have that there uh, as a brother who was immortal you know in the family, but I, th- I think Tom carried the mem- the memory of Tommy about with him always, and always would talk about Tommy and happily talk about Tommy. You know, and I remember his locker was opened in Tommy's locker was closed in seventy five, and opened in eighteen ninety nine for the first time, and and all the clubs are there, and his golf jacket is there, and. It's just it's just amazing to see Tommy's set of clubs in this photograph because there's no golf bag, you know. There's no there's there's one or two irons in that locker, but um, one possibly, and it was just um, it's just 
it's just amazing. You know, his, 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 his set of clubs looks like a set of hybrids. So if anybody ever gives you grief about using a hybrid, you're just following Tommy Morris, you know. It's just, just, um, just beautiful. Uh, wonderful to see. And, you know, Tom is undoubtedly, undoubtedly proud of Tommy. Here's a question I have for you, Roger, that I've often thought about. And I asked Peter Crabtree about it, but I won't. He had very firm convictions on this matter. But I'll be interested in your opinion, which is to what extent, if any, do you think the fame of old Tom and his reputation in golf was aided by the fact that his son was the most famous golfer and the most accomplished golfer of that age? I do know that whenever people came to St. Andrews, the first thing Tom would do is get out the belt and show it to him. So yeah. obviously he was he was pretty attached to that that legend. But what what is your thought on that? I, I think I think Tom is is this perfect concoction for golf in terms of he was a caddy, you know, he was a he was uh you know the open champion four times and he is the expert, the go to man on golf courses and golf course maintenance. I, I think that stands up on its own. I think um what Tommy did adds to the story you know it's like godfather part two you know godfather part one is still an amazing movie and i think it's the same with tom tom absolutely stands strong on his own right he was the grand old man of golf and he wasn't the grand old man of golf because he had a son who was good um and that's certainly not to take anything um away from tommy because we know tommy was unbelievable and tom said that he thought Tommy was better than him, you know. So, but um, Tom would still be the grand old man of golf, uh, I think, anyway, without, without Tommy. But it's certainly not, and not to take away anything from Tommy, but just Tom's own record um, is just um, fantastic. That was Peter Crabtree's view precisely articulated. <laughs> was it really? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked him, I asked him, you know, similar sort of question about, you know, um, did, was Tom, uh, you know, his whole life, um, would he have been successful if it wasn't for Alan? And he said, no, Tom just stands up on his own, you know, um, and, uh, and it just, as I say, when he touches every element of the game and does it, you know, at its best, whether it's course design or as a player, you know, I'm not surprised to call them the grand old man of golf. You know, well said. What is the Morris legacy? This goes to both of you. Maybe one for uh, young and one for old. What is what is what is left behind for future generations when we think back of old and young Tom Morris? Okay, um, with Tom. I think I think his legacy, actually, the fact that a Japanese golfer won the Masters this year. That that is that is Tom Morris's legacy about getting more people involved in golf, spreading the word, opening the doors to everybody. Golf is a game for everybody. Um, it always was, you know, in Scotland. It was a free game in Scotland. You didn't have to be rich to play golf, and that spirit spreading around the world, golf spreading around the world. Would just be just he would be delighted about it, you know. Um, and there's there's so much that he should be proud of, um, and he would he would be proud of the juniors in St Andrews 
having exactly the same, you know, uh, lifestyle in terms of golf is in their life from when they're born to when they die, you know, which is just just wonderful. So he, he would be very proud of that. So I think, but I think the spread of the game worldwide, and I know there was multiple factors, but he was a large factor in that. He would be delighted that somebody from Japan had won the Masters. Great answer. Stephen? Young Tom's legacy, I think, is Harry Varden, Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, Jack Nicklaus, Tiger Woods. You know, Tommy was the first of the immortals. He was the first player to show that the bar can be set monstrously higher than it ever has been. And let's challenge all the golfers living today to jump up and clear that bar. And that is what has continued all through the ages. You know, every every generation or so, some golfer comes along who is able to lift the bar up. Harry Varden, for instance, the first one to come after in 1898 and 1899. Harry Varden plays in 17 professional tournaments in those two years. He wins 14 of them and he finishes second in the other three, which is another performance that staggers the imagination. And it was Tommy who started all that, who 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 said, you know, that this game can be lifted up on the shoulders of one man and carried forward into another era. And so that I think of as his overall legacy, along with being an educated man and a different kind of golfer that would portend a future in which people could play golf only, which is the way Tommy made his living, and uh, earn a great living, which was not something that even Walter Hagen could do uh, throughout his career. But he showed that there was a way to do that, and others who came after him did do it. That's great. All right, I've got two more questions for you. Uh, Before we go, could you both share a story about these two remarkable gentlemen? Perhaps an underappreciated story or an unknown story to the average golfer. Stephen, we'll start with you. Okay, so one of the things that I, I just mentioned that I thought Tommy was a different kind of golfer. You know, in his age, golfers did not, either they played with gentlemen, but they didn't exist in a gentleman's world per se, with the possible exception of old Tom himself. But in 1869, Tommy's now, let's set the stage, he's 17 years old. He's won one Open Championship. He started now to attract the attention of uh, of the world and get some great matches going. He's having one against Bob Ferguson, the great Musselboro player. And uh, the last deciding round is at Luffness Links. Uh, and Tommy is going down uh, to get there a little early and prepare. And he stays at a hotel, uh, the Aberlady Hotel, with a gentleman, shares a room with him. The gentleman's name was R.J.B. Tate. And he was uh, uh, one of the extended family of Tates that includes Freddie and Professor Tate that uh, are very big family name in East Lothian. And this is what the man writes some years later in the golf book of East Lothian in a little section called Essays and Reminiscences. And this is his random reminiscence. And he says, on one occasion, when young Tom came to Luffness to practice for the first professional match of importance that had ever taken place there, vis-a-vis that between Bob Ferguson and himself, He stayed with us at the golf hotel at Aberlady and occupied the same bedroom as I did. We kept all our clubs there beside us and spent part of each night playing iron shots for pennies from the hearth rug into a hat which we placed on the bed. When we had often had some clubs in our bed beside us and infrequently, not infrequently, got up in the middle of the night to illustrate to each other how certain shots ought to be overcome, to go over the different styles of the golfers we knew and to imitate the various characters themselves. 
And so imagine that scene. Here's a working class young man who obviously is highly educated and has in many ways lifted himself out of the working class, staying in an actual hotel bedroom with the gentleman golfer. And they're having a grand old time pitching shots into a hat for pennies. Not only that, I love to think about who was Tommy jumping up and imitating when he jumped up out of bed to imitate a golfer. Maybe it was his dad missing another short putt. Tommy used to like to needle his dad a lot and say, you know, if the hole was a yard nearer to him, my father would be a great putter. But uh, so I sort of think of that scene as emblematic of Tommy, the dashing new breed and of a future in which golfers are accepted in a way they never have been before. And Tommy as the breakthrough person in that long line of change that brings us to a day when, uh, you know, golfers sell their giant mansion in Palm Beach, Florida for 30 million or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, you read that and all I get is mad at Tate for not going into more detail. <laughs> it would have been nice to go into more. But it's just, it's just, it's just, I think often of that scene and I think, you know, it's just so, I think, Roger, you would agree that it's pretty rare that a guy would spend the night in a hotel with the gentleman who was a working class golfer. Uh, and it was just, it was kind of an interesting thing to me. Yeah. And just to, to humanize him, right? I mean, I think uh, he, he's become, to I, I suppose many of us historians, almost a deity. And to have him, you know, doing something we might do on a golf trip with good friends standing around and you know, mimicking the swing of your buddy who just, you know, sliced it out into the Pacific Ocean. Yes, that's a, that, he was a character, you know, he would uh, play with Gilbert Mitchell Innes, one of the great amateur golfers of all time, and, you know, yell at him on the course because he just got back from a hunting trip and his game is off for him. So I don't understand why you go chasing around a wean stinking beast and come back here not able to hit a ball, you know, stuff like that. He was a josher, you know, he loved to have a good time. Roger, how about, how about a story from you? Yeah. So, yeah, actually, I think in, um, the story I have is about Tom, and this just really shows how good a player he was. Uh, so in 1893, they were having the Clubmakers Medal. So all the Clubmakers, you know, all the teams at Forgans, et cetera, they're all playing a match, and the Octorlonies as well. Um, so it's 1893. So Tom is 72. He's three weeks away from... Um, it was three weeks away from his birthday, and he shoots 83 around the links. He beats the Open champion, Willie Ogdeloni, and all the other champions who were playing, Jimmy Anderson, etc., at the age of 72. So you imagine, you know, Jack Nicholas in his 72nd year beating Rory McIlroy. You know, it just... It's just incredible. And that's why I love to come back to, and I think you touched upon it earlier, come back to Tom Morris, the golfer, because he was amazing, amazing golfer. And people think that, um, you know, although, you know, there was only one or two golfers in that era, but he was the best. He was the best, you know. And, uh, and even in his 72nd year, here he is beating the Open champion, you know. So, He's an incredible man. He is really a, a, a you know a man apart. He is he is very special. That score of eighty three, I think, is a little bit difficult for a modern golfer to wrap their mind around. One hundred percent. You know, but here's a little perspective for you. 
So when Tommy Morse and Davy Strath had their great matches in the summer of 1873 in St. Andrews, uh, which were two 108-hole matches, uh, they played such spectacular golf that Harry Everard, who, uh, when he wrote this, had seen quite a bit of golf before that and after that and described it as the most brilliant golf that had ever been played at St. Andrews. And the average score that Davy and Tommy put up in those two matches was 85.6 for, the, for all the rounds that they played. So here's old Tom in his dotage, 72 years old. Now it is 20 years have passed and agronomy and balls and clubs have improved to a degree. But my goodness, 83 from a 72-year-old man, that's shooting your age and then some uh, by any standard that could be used. And now, we, you know, people didn't shoot their age then, but that would be shooting your age in my view and probably quite a few strokes under your age. Uh, if you measure it by the standard of the time. So I think that offers a teeny bit of perspective. When you sent that clip around, uh, uh, you know, I, I kind of remembered it a little bit, but it just reinforced for me what you were trying to say there, Roger. What a staggeringly great golfer the man was. Yeah, they had a long driving competition, and the furthest drive was 222 yards. So, and, and so that gives you, you know, you're playing the old course, the furthest person who can hit the ball the longest is 220 yards which means everybody else is hitting at 180 190 you know the average golfer the average good golfer um but you're playing into bunkers that weren't wrecked you know this isn't a manicured course you know this this is a rough you know as we would we, we would know it as a rough course you know um you play the ball as it lay um and to shoot 83 you know when the open champion is, is like two shots higher you know, it's just incredible. He, he was an incredible man. Yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll give you perspective for those at home, and I think some of you who have listened to the show have probably heard it before, but many of you know that uh, I played hickory golf for a period of, I don't know, five years straight without playing modern equipment. And then I went off the, uh, off the planet a little bit and decided to play gutty golf purely for only for a period of about two or three years. So I have a set over here in the corner of my office that is a muscle bra set, which is Carrick irons. Uh, I think there's four Carrick irons. There is a McEwen play club. There is a Willie Park brassy. Um, I can't remember what. I, I know I have a McEwen and a Park putter, a uh, long nose putter. And getting ready to play those the golf that way, first of all, the greens specifically here in America would probably roll to the effect of, say, a fairway might step today. And I was playing uh, my club back in Iowa before I moved to Florida, Elmcrest Country Club, and I was on the 18th hole when the head pro pulled up, Larry Gladson. Larry Gladson is a phenomenal professional. Uh, he was one of the people who gave uh, lessons to Zach Johnson, who was a member of Elmcrest Country Club back in that time. And here I am getting ready, and I, you know, I'm wearing, you know, uh, you know, the traditional garb, I think it was in the fall. So I had like a heavy wool jacket on, a wool hat. I had plus twos like Varden. And I'm out there getting ready to hit a long nose. And, and by the way, I'm bringing out my own sand, folks. So you have to understand they didn't have teas back then. So they, I had a bucket of water and I had a, a really, it was a bottle of water and a bucket of sand. And what you do is I'd spray the water on the sand and I'd make a tea. 
Uh, there are ways to make a good sand tea, and I'll go into that in another podcast perhaps. But if you don't do it correctly, it's basically like hitting a bunker shot with your driver. So anyway, I get up there and poke the ball out there. I'm a fairly long driver of the golf ball in modern sense, uh, but you know I probably averaged 180 off the tee uh, with this long nose driver and a gutta percha ball. Anyway, here comes Larry Glatson pulling up in a golf cart. I don't know if he was just making the rounds on the golf course. And I said, hey, Larry, um, you want to try this? And he's like, yeah, I'll try it. Now, Larry's a phenomenal player. So I know he's he's not going to understand how to tee the ball up. So I kind of tee the ball up for him, you know, get the ball ready to go, kind of explain that the, the shaft is a real whip to it. And away he goes. And I think he hit the ball, I don't know, maybe 40 yards. And here's a phenomenal player, probably a plus three handicap. And he hits it like 40, 50 yards. And he just shakes his head and he's like, yeah, I can't do this. (laughs) And he just gets in his cart and drives on the fairway. So, I mean, to put that in perspective, I I, I would tell almost anybody back in the day, I, I would have said, whether I was right or wrong, that without any practice, if you gave Tiger Woods my clubs, my gutta percha clubs, and put them against me, on any given hole, I'd beat the tar out of him because it is such a different game. Um, Randy Jensen, who is a, a mentor of mine, perhaps in golf history, but more so in um, hickory golf, was very keen to say that there's a bigger difference between the year of 18, let's just call it 99, and 1905 that is in the golf ball than there is from the Haskell to the ball we play today. It is a game that does not resemble the game that we play today. It does, but it's so different. It's a game within a game, which is also why I love gutty golf, because it's such a different way to play the game. It's just, you'd throw par out the window. Um, I I used to throw a tournament called the All-American, where we played on a pre-1900 course, we played with pre-1900 rules, which were fascinating, by the way, with pre-1900 clubs and gutties, these replica gutties. And every time I got a new player, he'd say, what's the par for this hole? And I'm like, there's no par. I'm like, it's a two-shotter. So, you know, try to get it up there and see what happens. But the par is ultimately going to be what you shoot. And there, there's something freeing than that, too. The expectations gets thrown out the door when you play gutty golf, because you play a 400-yard hole, I don't know, is that a par 5? It's certainly not a par 4. Is it a par 5? Is it a par 6? I don't know. But it changes to your skill level. So when I hear those scores of 147 or a 49 over 12 holes or that 83 of old Tom Morris, I think of it with a sense of awe that I think the average golfer today who plays modern equipment just can't fathom. I mean, I, I think you could, Roger, I think you could say to most golfers, the majority of golfers who can't break 90, it must be a, a overwhelming fascination that someone could do that with that equipment. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you know I think, you know, if you, you want to knock about 15 shots, maybe more off it to put it into modern equivalents, you know. Uh, and, and the fact that the best golfers um, in Scotland and therefore the world at that time um, couldn't match it shows how good it was, you know? Unbelievable, right? Absolutely. But if you see photographs of Tom with a club, you know he's a golfer. 
he's got the balance on the, the balls of his feet. He just looks like that ball's going to go straight. He's going to hit that well, you know. Um, I know he was called a, a TikTok golfer because he had just a rhythmical swing, but uh, I just uh, an exceptional talent, you know. And he really was. One final question for you both. Uh, Stephen, you went into it a little bit uh, before, but I'd like you to readdress it here. What are you working on now? Stephen, maybe start with you, because I know you touched on it on the, on the beginning of the podcast. You know, I've been working since I submitted the Tommy book on a book that, uh, you know, I'm tentatively calling The Long Golden Afternoon, uh, which is uh, the way Bernard Darwin described it, uh, which is the period of time when golf comes of age, essentially. And uh, the book begins with uh, John Ball. Uh, winning the Open Championship in 1890 as the first Englishman and the first amateur to accomplish that. And then it goes on to tell the story of how in that one generation from 1890 to 1914, obviously with the antecedent of 1864 and the foundation of Westward Ho and later Hoylake, uh, golf becomes the modern game that you know now. You know, uh, everything that you think of as modern golf is developed during that period of time, the professional tours, uh, the designation of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club as the guiding light of golf for all time, the, the the rules committee is formed and, you know, the game is organized. So all the things that you think of as golf and then this great rivalry between England and Scotland, as I said before, what I think of as an evolution from the Musselboro St. Andrews rivalry, you know, becomes the antecedent really of all the international competitions that we think of now as the premier events in golf, uh, the, uh, the Walker cup and then the Ryder cup, all of those spring in a way from the inspiration for that first international match in 1902 at Hoylake between amateur teams from England and Scotland. And was very quickly followed up because the professionals could see how, how hot that was. And they started a professional international match immediately after that. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, everything about the game evolves during that, that period of years, those 24 years. Uh, and that's, the book tells the story of those years and the heroes, uh, and the battles that made the game, uh, become really, when you think of it, golf is one of the very few games that is truly worldwide game, you know, uh, football, British football, soccer is another one. Tennis to a certain extent is the third, but there are not that many. And golf became one of the very earliest ones. And I have always been fascinated by the idea that here you have a game that has been played for 400 years and pretty much only unchanged, frozen in amber, basically, in one country and not even all of that country. Uh, And then in a period of 50 years from the introduction of the gutty ball to the uh, outbreak of the war, uh, you know, in that short period of time, I'm, not, I'm sure I'm doing the math wrong. I'm, if I had been able to do math, I would have gotten a real job. Uh, but uh, in that period of time, relatively brief, the game goes worldwide. And I think of my two books, the Tommy book as the beginning of that, and this book as the culmination. And that's Monarch of the Green for those Monarch folks at home. Monarch of the Green is the Tommy book, and I don't know what this one will end up being called, or even if it will end up being published. Uh, but... Uh, I, it, I hope so, and uh, I'm I'm working with the title "The Long Golden Afternoon" because I feel like it, you know, captures the sweep of an age. That, that's a great name. I, I love that. That's a great name for a book. Don't Thank know what the content's sir. like, but the, but the title is brilliant. I've read the I've read the contents. It's it's amazing, by the way. Oh, perfect. 
Well, we'll hope for the best there. You know, I trust Peter Burns. He's a brilliant man, and hopefully he'll he in Berlin will want this book. They're supposed to tell me sometime soon, so kind of on pins and needles waiting to hear from them. Absolutely. So don't put that on the show. Monica the Green, honestly, is just a beautifully written book. So um, it, it just um, – I, I, I think you're on safe ground here. I think you're um, – I think I think you passed the audition. Oh, well, thank you. You know, that's so nice of you to say, Roger. And this book is told the same way. What I'm trying to do is just create something I call narrative history. You know, yeah. everybody who tries to tell golf as a story crosses over a line that I'm not comfortable crossing over as a lifelong newspaper reporter and editor, which is that they arrange quotes and scenes based on the research they've done and what it suggests to them about what happened. And the truth of the matter is you wander into dangerous territory to my mind when you do that. And what I really want to do is to be able to use the skills that I developed as a newspaper editor and writer to tell the history of golf as a story that anybody you teed it up with on a Sunday could relate to and perhaps understand something about the great and glorious history of their own game, which so few modern players know anything about the player's of other ages or even how the game was played or how it evolved. Now, my goal is to try to tell it as a story that anyone can read, hopefully not too terribly long. This book is a little longer for the obvious reason that it tells the story of an age as opposed to the story of a person who died when he was 24. Uh, so, but it, I think it's written, it is written in the same sort of what I would call breezy, hopefully easy to read style as the Tommy book. And that will be something that's, winning for golfers i hope roger how about you what are you working on um alan robertson um a a pal bill williams was was working on the book and he came to st andrews and um and i know he had had some negative feedback you know um people saying you know don't do it there's nothing new to find And, and i despair of that attitude i really do um, you know, I was told the same thing about Tom Morris. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, um, I said to him, listen, if you have a dream, if you can see this book in your head, you know, do it and I will help you every step of the way, whatever needs to be done, I will help you. Um, and then he was, he, he went back um, to America and he was going to come back to St. Andrews and he just sent me a note saying he was a little bit under the weather, but he would come back soon and keep in touch and and then it just popped up on facebook that he had died um he you know pancreatic cancer had taken him which was just devastating you know um but i kept in touch with his daughter and when she was here um um spreading his ashes um and she brought over you know all his notes and said could you finish the book uh, which was, you know, such an honour, really. Um, so, so I've been working on that, and and it, it definitely Bill had done some brilliant research, and, and there's definitely stories about matches, and there's new stuff to come out. There's also a new Alan Robertson to come out, you know, far from the sort of gamesmanship and the porky character, um, the cad character. Um, there's another one emerging, you know, and I, I can't wait to, to tell the story. Um, as with everything, the more research, the bigger and bigger uh, the book becomes. But there's a new story to tell, and um, I'm really excited about it. So 
And then on the front cover, it will say, you know, my name, but it also have Bill Williams on the front of it as well. So, um, and I think the working title is just Alan Robertson, champion golfer of Scotland. Yeah. Um, how how far along are you? Um, I, I'm in I'm in the the sort of research part of it um, because I keep finding things, and then I keep wanting to find things which I can't find. You know, the the the, the whole story of of St Andrews and why is it free land and why is the golf course owned by the people and you know that question haunts me really because I um you know I, I, there's a thing called the cursus apri and this was a gift in 1124 by king alexander and i was thinking okay so that's the gift of the land um to the churches which became the people's land but then i, I was just i was in uh, Buchan east which is this wonderful bookshop in st andrews um, at the end of Market Street, you really should go there if you can, and all these old books. And I was flicking through a book, and, and it said, and King Alexander confirmed the gift of the Coldies. I was like, well, oh, no, don't tell me that. That means that there's another part, because I thought it was the Cursus Apri, but the Cursus Apri only confirmed the gift of the land up to the people um, from a previous generation. And there's a chance that the university may not have any of the records because it goes back so far. University is amazing. They have a records from, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. But there is a limit of documentation, you know, because we could be talking back to the sort of ninth century or so. So, but, uh, so yeah, so I, um, I keep finding things and keep getting distracted. Um, but but the, the the history of the Robertson family is is just wonderful in itself. So I, I can't wait to tell that story. You know, Bill did some wonderful work. So between the between us, we'll we'll get it over the line. I, I tell you, so there's two parts to that. One, I'm so happy this book's being made. Um, I, I play the smallest of small roles in in Bill getting into that book because I this is years ago. We were talking about you know on the podcast I had him on the show and. It was prior to that we were talking about what are you going to write next because he had he had published the Ted Ray book I think it was his last book and I really challenged him on he was talking a little bit about Alan and I am just I am enthralled with Alan because there's not a lot known by him I have a book of uh, Alan Robertson I can't remember what it's called uh, ah I, I don't know I, it was published maybe in the 1980s what was that yeah the Adamson book. Yeah, the that's correct. Yes, it's on the other side of my desk. Otherwise, I'd grab it. But it's just it's one step. But it's there's so much more to be known about him. And I really challenged Bill. I said, I think you should write this book. There it is, right there. You need to write this book about Alan Robertson and dig up. And he's like, I don't know if there's enough. And I'm like, the only way you're going to know is to dig. Like, do it. And I'm so happy to see this come out. I, I just I tell you, between these two books that you're both you know, writing, researching and writing, they are so perfect for me. <laughs> First of all, I love Alan Robertson. He is, he stands like you can't see he's on the other side of my office in the match. You know, he's one of the, the great golfers in the match at St. Andrews. Um, he's actually above my head here with old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris as well. And then we have Steven's book, which is going to take place of this great transition uh, that takes place with the gutty golf and the expansion of golf and this, 
you know, the, the gutty into the wound ball. And I just think, you know, both of these subjects really are perfect for me. This is why I know you're writing it just for me to read it. I know that. But I'm telling you, I am definitely your core audience here because I need both of those books printed immediately. <laughs> well, thank it, it you, is, Connor. Research is fun. And, and, and I think, you know, with Stephen as well, it's a passion. And I think hopefully that, that comes across on the pages as well. You know, um, We love it, really. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I mean, as soon as you have these books out, obviously, we'll have you back. Hopefully, I'm going to have you on the podcast prior to that. But thank you both for taking the time today. I know we're, I've taken a lot of your time, about two hours and 24 minutes by my clock. Um, thank you so much. I'm sure your back's hurt and you need to stretch out a little bit like I do. But it's it's really been an amazing show. I, I can't get enough of you know the Morris family. Uh, and what they mean to golf. And I know in this two hours and 24 minutes, we only touched upon the surface of their impact on the game of golf. But it is my hope that those people who are listening who didn't know a lot about Tom Morris and young Tom Morris, that this podcast gets you to explore their story a little bit more. And there's no better people than the people on this podcast, Stephen Proctor and, and Roger McStravick, to go to for information on those two gentlemen. So thank you so much. You're most welcome, Connor. And it was an honor to be on with Roger, who is the preeminent historian of our time. That's for fact. I agree. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. I, I've loved it. Honestly, I could I talk for another three hours. You know, um, it is just wonderful, and uh, and I love hearing about Tommy because I, I haven't studied Tommy, and I just love hearing the stories about Tommy. So so thank you guys. Much appreciated. And if you do, Roger, if you get a chance, go play golf. I can see the sun shining through your window off of your glasses. And I just, I fear that we have taken up valuable time while you could be playing the old course right now. Um, With your new Callaways, by the way, that were fitted for him. Yeah, for my 50th. Yeah, um, I I would dearly love to, but uh, this afternoon, um, um, it's one of the joys of St. Andrews. I'm going down to the beach with my kids. Oh, that's fantastic. Who, who've obviously um, been very good for the last two and a half hours. Yeah, I didn't see him run in the background and hear things break. It's... I know, but that's worrying. So, <laughs> it's more worrying than yeah, so you can go out and survey the damage now. That's right. Fantastic. Well, thank you again, gentlemen. This father and son duo molded the game that we all play today, and their fingerprints are everywhere we look. Without old Tom Morris and his rivalry with Willie Park, it is possible that we do not have major championships today. And without young Tom Morris, we wouldn't have the oldest major championship trophy, the Claret Jug. Old Tom Morris was a Pied Piper of sorts, inspiring golfers, designing golf courses, and recommending St. Andrews professionals to serve and grow our game across the world. These titans of golf are two of the mighty pillars of which our game stands on today. Their gift, their sacrifice, their love of the game is ever-present. And their reach crosses the mighty oceans, translates into hundreds of languages, and beats within the hearts of every golfer. They may not be top of mind in the thoughts of the everyday golfer, but you cannot play this game without being impacted by their gifts.
And for that, I am thankful. Until next time, yours in golf history. This is Connor T. Lewis.